Hi and hello, Watch fans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts, and my friendly co host, calling in from Amsterdam. How are you today, Alan? Very well, Rob. How are you? Sounding by the voice, you have lack of sleep. I am extremely sleep deprived. I have been flying around like a maniac, visiting our good friends in Scandinavia, over in Oslo with Straum, and then in Copenhagen with Arkenaut. So it's been a busy week so far. It's only. Oh, what day is it now? Wednesday? Is it? I don't know. <laughs> is it Wednesday? It is Wednesday. It's uh, <laughs> the mid of the work week. And, and you and I actually haven't spoken that much. We, we've branched out and recording separately because our schedule is so packed that um, we, we are struggling to sit down and talk relaxed. So I'm happy to hear your voice, buddy. Well, it's good to hear yours too, and I've enjoyed listening to it on the recordings you've been doing without me, which is a nice little wrinkle to the show, because of course I've done a few already, and I think one or two have even published. So yes, the listeners will uh, get to enjoy episodes in the future without both of us going head to head. But today, of course, we are back together to answer the questions from our listeners that are still busting the seams of our mailbag. So, Alon, uh, where should we start? Maybe let's start with a time-sensitive one. Keith from San Francisco sent me a DM on Instagram, and he asked us, what do you expect from Watches and Wonders this year in Geneva? So, Rob, I'm very curious. Well, what is your vibe? What do you think? You and I both are going to visit the fair. We're going, obviously, to the fairgrounds at the Pal Expo visiting Watches and Wonders, but many brands will be exhibiting all around town in hotels and lobbies and their boutiques. I'm very excited to go together with you. Yeah, it will be a good experience. I mean, we've both been to many of these fairs before uh, separately and sometimes on opposite sides of the table, but this is the first time we will be traveling as a duo. And I'm expecting that we'll have a good time. But in terms of releases, I think that we're probably going to just see some color variations, to be honest. I'm, I'm not particularly optimistic that we'll see anything groundbreaking or revolutionary if i'm being honest what i hope to see from rolex uh especially after our conversation the other day about the pepsi gmt i'd like to see the coke make a return on the jubilee bracelet and i would also like to see the root beer get a oyster steel and everose jubilee so in terms of specific releases that's what's on the top of my mind to be honest but i'm actually just excited to be there and to see everybody again and to just reconnect because uh, it'll be the first fair since the launch of the real-time show and that'll be quite nice to see how people react to it i never know what to expect we could say that things change ever since basel world right so watches and wonders used to be sihh and traditionally for almost two decades they switched up from spring March, April-ish to January. And that was um, the start of the year. And they would set the trend and the vibe, I guess, for novelties and trends in the watch industry that year. But since Basel World is no more, unfortunately, after 102 or 103 years, Watches and Wonders moved back to springtime. So this year it's starting at Monday, the 27th of March for five days, I believe. Last two days are open to the public, which is cool. It used to be one day and a few years ago, you couldn't even visit at all or you had to be a VIP to be invited by the brands. Um, 
Then LVMH created a mini fair, I think three years ago. So this year in January, we saw LVMH Watch Week, which the first two were in Dubai and this year was in Singapore. Four brands of the LVMH conglomerate exhibited there and launched their novelties. Um, cool novelties, but not groundbreaking in my humble opinion. Bit of line, line extensions, as we call them, either variations in metals of existing models, skeletonizing the calibers, or doing two tone or different dial colors. Um, so I don't think that was groundbreaking. If that sets the tone, I don't know what to expect. Obviously, the the biggest news last year was that Patek, Rolex, and, and Chopin, for example, joined Watches and Wonders. Um, so the biggest news will go out to probably Rolex and Patek novelties. Last year, Patek threw a curveball because I think they launched the coolest watch at the end of the fair or even a day after the fair ended. Um, I also hope that we'll see a Coke as you and I discussed. Um, everybody's anticipating a gold Nautilus jumbo. I mean, a yellow or pink gold, because they have the white gold now. Um, I think we can expect fireworks from Tudor again. Last year, they grabbed a big chunk of the headlines with their Black Bay Pro, which was a wink and a tribute to the siblings Explore 2. It was a bit more than a wink, wasn't it? It was just a sort of straight line drawn between the two. Yeah. You're right. And they admitted that. I mean, they, they didn't hide it or mask it or spin it. I personally love the, 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 the carré of the independence. So I expect a lot from them. Um, but I'm a bit nostalgic. I love the fact that everything was concentrated in one and two big fairs. Everything was launched there. And then you ride out the year. Now, the brands love the fact, and that's mostly due to social media and Instagram. They do waves, right? So I think they they follow the the pulse of fashion industry and do two up to four launches a year. Um, but I, I, I guess it, it me as a retailer de- definitely irritates me because I often see launches on Instagram, and then I get requests from consumers to buy them. I don't know anything. Then I contact my local management to order them. They don't know anything yet. So it's, it's information is scattered and diffuse. And, and that's something that as a professional, I don't like. As a watch collector, it is exciting, right? Cause they feed that FOMO vibe. So the fear of missing out. So it keeps you glued to your uh, daily sources of watch media and i recognize that need because as a sneaker collector i daily check my sneaker apps to see what they launch and they have something that's called a qs which is a quick strike so sometimes out of the blue they just launch a limited edition shoe it's pops up and it's gone within minutes so those are my two cents on the upcoming watch fair and 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 also shout out to the Geneva watch days i think they started during 
COVID or when Basel died, which is, I think, also during COVID. Um, I guess the CEOs of Ulysse Naudin, Bulgari, Breitling, and a few more set up that initiative to bring people together in Geneva, not so much in one concentrated place as the Pal Expo, but they call it a fair. And, and, and that is also growing. So I guess in the summer, end of the summer, just be, before September, we'll see there a big wave of launches again. What do you think of them scattering these launches? Do you think it's good or bad? Well, from a journalist perspective, it's actually kind of nice, actually, because the difficulty with the old style fairs like Basel, where everything dropped at once, was that you had to, well, I mean, you had to cover everything. And you very rarely had the chance to secure a physical loan piece before you had to write the article. Oftentimes you had a matter of hours to turn around v- worthwhile content with nothing but a press release. And then you were faced with the decision of how to actually publish it. So on the one hand, you want to try and be the first to get the article out there. You want to try and beat all of your uh, friendly rivals in the media industry and like get the scoop as it were. But also that's not really beneficial for your readers when everybody's embargo lifts at the same goddamn second. And so you have the possibility of having maybe 30 or 40 or even 50 articles all queued to go live at the same time. And when you look into the back end of any popular watch blog, you would see very clearly that the effectiveness of those rapid fire publications is is very, very poor in comparison to a normal article that has time to sit on the site on the homepage and breathe and be seen and be organically read. It's a nightmare. You basically are working for nothing. You don't get the clicks, you don't get the reads, you don't get the interaction, but you have all of the pressure of having to turn around those articles in a short space of time. So having the releases spread out over a year is wonderful for watch blogs because it means that everything can be covered appropriately and everything be given the time and space it needs to mature. And in fact, it is better for the brands as well because they get more exposure. However, it is a lot of fun. And it is quite exciting when you have all of these releases at once and you have this huge peak that everybody's looking forward to. I mean, it's like Christmas or the industry's birthday in a way. You look up to it all year and then there's these big hurrahs and it's all very grand and it's uh, maybe (laughs) an expression of the bits of the watch industry that are are the least palatable, but also in real life, actually quite a lot of fun to witness so from a collector's perspective i love it because i enjoy having so much news to pour through from a professional perspective i hate it because it causes all kinds of problems i hope that answered your question keith thank you so much keep them coming we love the passion and the feedback going from keith i got a message from edward burr from amsterdam he's my buddy in amsterdam big watch collector, and he goes all Dutch on me, and you. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. He asks, and uh, the honor is yours to start off, what watch brand is better, Van der Gang or Christian Van der Klau? And for our listeners, I will spell it. Van der Gang, they're both two Dutch watchmakers, and 
um, we have more. And one big one is as well the Grunefeld brothers. Van der Gang and, and, and Christian van der Klaar are both based in the north of the Netherlands. It's in a province called Friesland. Van der Gang is more modern. Um, it's spelled V-A-N-D-E-R and then G-A-N-G. And Christian van der Klaar, which usually is just shortened to Klaar, K-L-A-A-U-W. Both of them started off not so much making their own calibers. Van der Klaar is maybe the godfather of the Dutch modern watchmaking industry. He started more than four decades ago and joined the AHCI, so the independence, back in the 80s, very early on, including Mr. Anderson, which will be on the show also very soon. So I'm very excited about that. These these guys are the godfathers of the indies. And, and to give a summary for those that don't know the brand, from the Klaus USP, so unique selling point, the DNA of the brand is astronomical watches. Mr. Van der Klau was obsessed with, with, with everything astronomical. And there is a big and long historical lineage for Dutch and watchmakers in the Netherlands with astronomical pieces because the Dutch were a seafaring nation. So to navigate the seas, they needed to use astrology and astronomy, which are two different things. We always have Christian Huygens, who invented the pendulum. Um, so those are all inspiration and inspirators for Van der Klau. Um, what made Van der Klau world, world, world famous, he's literally legendary in the watch world, but also in the art world, is he made the smallest planetarium movement ever, which is also made for uh, Van Cleef and Arpen. Van der Gang is a more modern and new watchmaker. Van der Gang started making fine instruments and spare parts for the aerospace industry. So he has a factory. From there on, he got infected with a watch bug and started making his own watches. His USP is that he started off by milling his own cases and his spiel was he wanted the most scratch-resistant steel watches. Um, although he says he's not inspired by IWC in Schaffhausen, but for those that don't have the opportunity now to look at his watches, they are a bit in that genre, that style. You could say they are uh, inspired by Portuguese watches, which are named again Portugieser in German, or the pilot watches. So less is more, a bit form follows function. Um, I wouldn't call it Dutch design. In style, they're totally different. So Rob, I know you know almost all brands, and if not, I can drop the almost, you know all brands. Um, I'm curious what you think. It's, it's, it's a very suggestive question because better is a subjective question but let's go well thanks for that intro i i think i can remember the question which is better right yeah between which brand is better well i i um i don't mean to be uh inappropriately direct but i'm not even sure if it's a serious question 
Um, the answer, although subjective, I admit, is van der Klaue. And it's not even close, in my opinion. And the reason for that is, I would say several fold. Firstly, very much firstly, and very superficially, I personally prefer the aesthetic. I think it is more identifiable. I think it is more interesting. It's certainly more characterful than uh, Van der Heijn, uh, which has some nice but pretty middle-of-the-road and pedestrian designs in its lineup. I am quite fond of their chronograph line, uh, the, the, the smarter chronographs, which look a little bit like IWC Portuguese's with nice, uh, very pronounced 3D numerals on the dial and uh, an interesting uh, moon phase indicator at 12. But the movements inside uh, Vanderhang are very, very, very basic. I mean, we're talking slightly modified 775 series chronographs, uh, pretty run-of-the-mill calibers. Otherwise, Vanderklau is completely different in terms of its caliber manufacturing or proprietary sourcing, at least, and the finishing style. Um, and weirdly enough, the price points aren't as far apart as, in my opinion, they should be. Uh, Vanderklau is more expensive, but it isn't the case of you know 5,000 versus 50,000. They're both in the five-figure range quite frequently. So to me, it's um, a very easy question, uh, one that I think is very easy to defend. Um, Vanderklaas the best. What do you think? I guess you are more outspoken than me. I find it very difficult to use the word better. What do I prefer more? I prefer Vanderklaas more, personally. As you said, it has more character, more DNA. He came from a perspective of innovating mechanics, mechanical uh, he is he he was and still is a man on a mission. His protege became his successor, Pim Kuslach. He joined the company last year. He's very ambitious, has big plans. I know what his ten-year strategy is. So um, I'm, I'm not I'm not objective. I am subjective. Um, and then he let, paid less focus on designing cases. Van der Gang had a different approach. He came from a aesthetic point of view. So he wanted to make instruments. Um, and it's less exciting. Um, I, I don't see a clear-cut design DNA yet. I do think that he recently designed a module for either perpetual or an annual. But what I regret, we don't see him and his team enough i don't think they get enough attention we don't see them enough so i suggest let's get him on the show his first name is Wiebe, w-i-e-b-e-e -E -E, and let's talk to him um but if i had to pick edouard i would go for van der Gang. don't you think that it's kind of well not kind of entirely our responsibility to be at least openly critical about situations like this where you have two brands that, you know, I, I just can't, I can't get on board with putting them on the same level. I can't get on board with putting them head to head. It's not an insult to Van der Hang to say that. 
it, it it's a different type of brand, but it's just in a different category. I I totally agree. I would call I would call Van der Gang hot horlogerie. Not all calibers are manufactured. They use a lot of tractors. They are moving and gearing towards being almost totally independent. But for me, the magic, and I, I think we've said that often on the show, and I, I think you and I both are very skewed to the independence, to the artists, the designers and the creators of the new. And I, I, I would urge and would love to push van der Gang, Wiebe, to get out of his comfort zone, push it further, um, go further, find your own tone, your own D- DNA, your own designs. You can do it. Um, but you would. He doesn't need. To. But you would already put that brand in a autologerie bracket. Who van der Klau? You said van der Hang. Oh my! I'm sorry. I need more coffee. Sorry. Correction. Mea culpa. <laughs> van der Klau. Right. I almost had a seizure. I was like, "What are no, you talking no, I'm about?" Sorry, I'm sorry. No. 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 So I'm I, I'm sorry, <laughs> listeners. If I confuse you, sorry, Rob. Clau, I I call him Hotologerie, yeah. and we can't argue. Yeah, that. I agree. Okay? I agree. He designed the, the 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 planetarium by hand, like Kurt Klaus. I put Van der Clau at the same level as Herr Kurt Klaus. High praise. Yeah, it's high praise. Funny uh, intermezzo. I Herr Klaus is. I I I'm proud to call him a friend, and. I love that gentleman, and I've known him for almost three decades. And whenever we, I see him at fairs, he says, Alon, Alon, come. You and I, we drink whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound of this guy. <laughs> no, he's amazing. He's a, he is an OG. He's such a gentleman, but a cool guy. So I uh, visited the IWC boutique in Amsterdam. They had this beautiful... 3D grand printed perpetual calendar up on the wall. And, and I love that. I've, I've owned several of them. So I took a picture of that, put it on my Instagram stories, tagged Herr Kurt Klaus. He's very active on Instagram, guys. So if you ever want to reach out to him, he himself replies. Um, I think he has two accounts because I think he forgot the password of one. So you need the one with the black and white picture. That's him. So I tagged him. Suddenly, my phone rings after an hour, but my phone rings a r- weird ringtone, which I've never heard before. So I'm like, I'm, I'm totally confuzzled. So I pick up and then I hear, hello, hello. <laughs> I'm like, yes, this is Alon. Who's this? Uh, Kurt. I said, Kurt Klaus? Yeah? Alon? Yeah? We get it. a good. So I said, so, <laughs> so he says, uh, wh- why are you calling me? I said, Herr Klaus, you are calling me. <laughs> <laughs> so so we go back and forth for like 30 seconds. I said, no, 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 no. I said, it's okay. Uh, I saw, I'm sorry, uh, Herr Klaus. I just want to say, hello, how's your wife? Yes, sehr good, sehr good. I said, uh, okay, see you in Watches and Wonders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, we have a whiskey? Yeah. Seika, <laughs> seika. <laughs> so, so what happened? I never use the phone opportunity in Instagram DM, right? Right. But you have on the top right corner a phone button. I think he got a notification that I tagged him. He probably pressed the button by accident okay. and he called me. Bless so, him. and I did, I've never received a call on Instagram direct, but apparently it pushes through all your lock screens. Although I turned off all the notifications. So, sorry, that was a uh, funny intermezzo, but 
he's he's way past the 80s. So guys, if you want to call Kurt Klaus, just call him on a DM. He picks up. Do you know his Instagram handle? Yeah, so his handle is at Kurt.Klaus, which spells K-U-R-T dot K-L-A-U-S. Um, and he has almost 3K followers, but it's it's really him. He posts, he replies, and he's uh, up and running. And if you guys don't know who this is, just Google Smartwatch by IWC. It's one of the best modern watch marketing campaigns out there. I'm happy IWC found their uh, stride again in making good marketing, a funny marketing like they used to in the 90s. So um, he's still an ambassador. He doesn't really work anymore, but he goes to events and he's obviously the grand ambassador of IWC Shuffle. Amazing. So super cool. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry, we deviated completely. So I put Van de Klaus at, at the same position of geniusness as um, uh, uh, Kurt Klaus. Um, so, so yeah. Um, should we just round this up? I'm sorry, we totally deviated. Well, deviations are fine. That's the advantage of a podcast. You, you can just go down a rabbit hole whenever you want to. So I think we're, we're, we're pretty much uh, in alignment here. Like There is a significant gulf in, at the moment at least, mechanical class between the two. And um, that's okay to say. It's not... It's not diplomatic to ignore the facts, in my opinion. So, you know, we've got we've got one brand that's uh, on the up, and hopefully that's Van der Hang, and they're hopefully going to do some good stuff in the future. But right now, Van der Klauw is, I think, a real leader in the Dutch market. Yeah, definitely. But um, but kudos to Van der Hang, yeah, because he he literally sells a lot of watches to mostly, I guess, Dutch collectors, and a lot of them trade in their IWCs for that and they like the style and then they love the fact that he writes Flieger which in Dutch is with a V and in German is with an F so it's spelled V-L-I-E-G-E-R um, so he does that um, and I actually get a lot of requests yeah, to supply these watches but um, I think he works either direct or he has one or two points of sale but but it works apparently. So uh, kudos to him, and uh, the more watchmakers, the better. All right, I've got a good one for you. This came in from Mike in Singapore via LinkedIn, and he said, <laughs> "You know, <laughs> it's funny to read it on paper, but um, why are you guys so obsessed with watches? What made you fall in love, and why does it dominate your lives so much? Because I don't know something about the way the question is worded." <laughs> He's quite accusatory, but I like it because he's completely accurate. Of course, like we are obsessed and watches do dominate our lives. But why don't you tell our listeners the story of how you got into watches and what the whole industry means to you? Wow, this is going to be a psychology uh, session. I did not have... Well, I did have choice, yeah? I mean, um, uh, for those that don't know me, I've uh, been born into a jeweler's family. My dad is totally obsessed with both watches and design. He is a master diamond cutter, polisher, and master goldsmith. So he designs my dad. He draws, designs. So, um, and, and, and he loves watches. So I... I've, I've seen it literally at home and at work. I mean, I, I used to go to work a lot with him because I love the fact. I am um, sad enough to say that I'm not creative enough, not in drawing, not in designing. I'm not a goldsmith. My brother, Amir, is a goldsmith in Diamantaire. I'm not. I have two left hands. 
but I have uh, the utmost respect for creative uh, gents and ladies um, in whatever they can make, either with their minds or hands or both. Um, obviously, I did have a choice. I mean, it could have not clicked. It could have not infested me with the virus. The funny thing is my, our parents always pushed us to branch out, do other things, go study um, retail. They did not want us to go into actually because it's hard work, a lot of responsibility, and the biggest aspect was safety. It's not always very safe profession-wise. So um, it was a very concise decision. I did get the bug. Um, the first watch I've ever gotten was in 83. My dad came home back from work. I, I remember this vividly. It's actually one of my oldest memories. Um, one of them is that he came back from work and he bought me an LP, which was Michael Jackson's um, thriller album. And it was a double folding one. And he was lying there with a panther or a tiger on him. And that made a huge impression on me. And I remember that he, in that same year, I believe it was 83, he came home with a swatch for me. And I was four. I couldn't even read the time. But I've never seen a plastic watch. So that made an impression on me. Then I believe that same year he came home with a G-Shock as well. Um, so, so that made such an impression on me. Um, and the funny thing is, although it wasn't mechanical, the, everybody who owns a Swatch knows how loud the ticking is, right? I mean, Rob, can you sleep with a Swatch on your bedside counter next to you or on your wrist? You can sleep if you get, uh, get used to it, but it, it's certainly never uh, possible to ignore the immense clattering of the escapement as it ticks along but i actually grew to love it you know when i was a kid i couldn't sleep yeah. unless my hamster was running on its wheel um and then as i got older and i had fewer hamsters and more swatches the swatches took the place of the wheel and i i had about 30 at one point when i worked for swatch and i had them all uh, hung on my wall and they were ticking obviously not simultaneously because <laughs> they're like quartz watches with uh, a, a one one beat per second um tick and the sound was endless it was like a, a field of crickets or yeah grasshoppers like all night but i i got used to it and i could sleep but it's not easy for the uninitiated that's for sure no so it's a, it's amazing to hear that you have that same um feeling about the sound so but but that sparked that sound also sparked something in me um and i don't know if you remember the first collection um from swatch in adt but they were beautiful designs actually very minimalistic um and and, and i would even concise it as or label it as ad swiss design um so the design did something to me that sound because you have to remember, Mechanical was basically almost dead, right? Jean-Claude Biver on our first episode of The Real Time Show uh, told us the story how he revived Blancpain and that he said, I'm never going to make a quartz watch, which today doesn't make sense to us, that slogan. But in the 80s, nobody wanted Mechanical anymore. Uh, Breitling in 85 came out with the Chronomat again. A Valjoux 7750, rather thick watch. My dad bought the first one for himself, for his own collection. And I remember that Rouleau bracelet, heavy. I've never seen such a bracelet. Um, and, and you know, everybody who owns a 7750, you know, it's, it's, it's a heavy 
vibrating movement. It vibrates like crazy. It rotates very fast. So, and, and that sparked the mechanical aspect in me. And, um, the, 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 the love for tech, te- technicality and technical, uh, uh, tools was fed by the fact that my dad used to wear from the seventies to about the nineties, uh, Porsche design watches by IWC. So he had the Ocean 2000. He had the Compass watch. He had the um, chronograph with the integrated pushers. And that also sparked my passion for both titanium and black watches. So actually, I should blame my watch, my dad, because uh, um, he loved the cutting edge side of watchmaking. He would buy um, the newest of the new, and he would literally dive in heads first. So, and I only had that experience with the Octo Finissimo. And it actually reconnected back to my youth where I had that sense of excitement again. Um, to answer the second part of his question, Mike's question, um, why does it dominate our life so much and why we're so obsessed? I don't know. It's, it's, I, I, I love watches. I, I, I find it the most beautiful art form there is. It's kinetic. It moves. It lives. Um, it could patinate. Um, it's, I mean, we're in an era where we talk about sustainability all day long. It's super sustainable. It literally, if you take care of it, it can become antique. Um, they're time machines, they're time capsules. They are an embodiment of your time. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's life itself. It literally has a heartbeat. It has its own character. I mean, you can take uh, two, three, ten of the same model and every watch will behave differently, right? I mean, you as a watchmaker know that. We sometimes call watches that have a lot of problems. We call them Monday morning watches that the watchmaker on Monday didn't have enough coffee. So he didn't put too much TLC in it or he didn't fix a bug in, in, in the hairspring or whatever. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I can't describe it. And I actually don't want to describe it because I don't want to get cured. I love the watch virus. I don't think there is an antidote. And if there is one, I don't want it. It's the same thing like you're in love with your partner. You don't need to know always why you love something, right? Well, I don't know. I ask myself frequently about my partner, never about the watches. <laughs> well, luckily she doesn't listen to these episodes. Yeah, unfortunately so. she does. I'm going to be in a lot of trouble when she yeah. hears that. But she um, she knows I'm joking. And she also knows that I'm obsessed with watches. And it's been a long-running obsession. I think the first time I became aware of watches was when I was about five or six years old. Although there has recently been a picture presented to me by my mother of me at maybe three or four wearing a watch that looks suspiciously like a G-Shock. And nobody knows where it came from or how I got my hands on it or why I was wearing it. But that was a bit of a revelation. I thought the first time I ever encountered a watch was when I was about five and I was in the Christmas play at school. And I was playing this character called Roger Red Hat. And there's one scene at the end of this script where he has to check his watch and he realizes that Santa Claus is late and he slaps his head in disbelief and uh, falls over. And I insisted to my teacher that I had to have a real watch for this scene. And she said, just draw one on a piece of paper and cut it out. 
and wear it. And I was like, no, no, <laughs> I said something stupid. Like I'm a method actor. I don't know. I was five. I was even more of an idiot then than I am now. And, um, I started seeking uh, a watch that I could borrow from somebody. And as it happened, my best friend at the time had a quartz watch from a little chocolate company called Smarties. I mean, they're not a little chocolate company. They were massive in the old days. I don't know if they still exist, but they were little, um, candy coated chocolate drops and he'd saved up the caps of the smarties tubes and he'd sent them off with a postal order for like 3.99 and he'd received this little digital smarties watch and he let me wear it for the play and i fell in love with it and i have not stopped falling in love with watches ever since and it always stuck out in my mind as something that i would like to pursue but it wasn't until i was 17 when i got my first job in the industry in retail that I realized that it was going to be the passion that dominated my life. And I have been in love with it ever since. I have tried to walk in as many shoes as possible in the industry. I've tried retail and journalism and watchmaking and design and consultancy. And it never ceases to amaze me how much more there is to discover and how creative one can be with such a small and precise and specific canvas. And I think that's what I love most about it. If I were a painter and not a watchmaker, I would, I think, oftentimes be crippled by the scope of what I was able to do. A watch always has to work, at least. And those constraints, while it sounds quite broad in general, are what really enthrall me. How is it possible to be so creative when you have to follow so many rules? That's the game to me. That's the fun of it. And that's why I get out of bed every morning and try and learn more about the industry and try and push it in a direction that it's never gone before. And I am a watchmaker and one day will make watches again and have already designed a caliber that has not existed before and can do something that no other caliber has ever done. I'm not going to say anything else because I haven't patented it yet, but um, one day I hope that to be part of the story and inspire other people like me 20 years ago when they're taking their first steps in the industry and they realize that it is actually possible to go from nothing and do something of note within watchmaking. Because from the outside looking in, it feels a bit like a closed shop. And even when you start out, even when you have legitimate skill or or something to offer, it can feel a little bit hard to break into, let's say. That's very interesting and an awesome story, and especially about the method acting and that you wanted a real watch. Oh, I was such a prima donna, such a prima donna. You still are, buddy. Yeah, true. <laughs> no, you're a lovely guy, and you're actually not a drama queen. But I, I'm very curious to hear about your caliber. Why did you think of it? And why is it not in production yet? Why did I think of it? Well, like everything else I've done in my life, I didn't really have a choice. My brain just went off on a tangent and uh, came up with it. Okay, why? Well, I can't say too much because the technology is entirely original. And so uh, if I even gave an I, a hint, really, of what it is <laughs> going to be, uh, it would yeah let the cat out of the bag. I conceived it having met some very interesting individuals in fields of scientific research that I knew nothing about previously, and they knew nothing about watchmaking. And I thought for a long while how I could implement the technologies they were developing in a meaningful and useful way 
in watchmaking rather than just using uh, their discoveries as say uh, an embellishment or an aesthetic uh, selling point i wanted to actually take what they discovered and find a practical use for it and i think it was actually in a swimming pool in mallorca that <laughs> it finally fell into place for me i was just sort of leaning on the edge of this pool looking at a very serene vista and uh as as happened when i was learning to be a watchmaker suddenly the movement components just sort of dropped into place in my brain and i was able to like fly through the architecture of the caliber and see how everything engaged and where the power is coming and where it is going and how it's been stored and used by different elements of the movement and okay so i, I this may be frustrating for people to listen to because i I'm not being specific. I'm not explaining exactly what it is, but what came after that was a uh, a design so that there are aesthetics already in place to make the most of this movement's functionality uh, that was itself almost as interesting as the movement. And I have now got everything in place to create it but to answer the second part of your question and why does it not exist yet because the technology is entirely new there is no tooling to create what i have designed and more to the point to create the first few pieces will be devastatingly expensive so what i might do to get to that point is to start a brand with the same mission to create that movement but to sort of step up the technology in every release to get to the end point as it is right now i mean it's it's funny to sort of have an end point in mind when you haven't done anything because given the pace at which these ideas tend to develop and the things that one learns when putting a product out into the market or even announcing it to the market there are so many other directions one could go in and so many wrinkles that you could add to make it even more interesting. So goodness knows where it'll end or when it will manifest. Uh, <laughs> right now, and you can be very glad of this, I'm sure, I am dedicated to the real-time show and will not be distracting myself by trying to create mind-bendingly complicated calibers. I hope your idea will come into fruition very soon and maybe we should make it the real-time caliber but opening aside um would love to see your initial sketches um shall we go on to the next one i think we have time for one or two more we promised Wouter from amsterdam to go down his list because he asked us what we think are the best designs of the 90s which we've dealt with so now it's turned for the noughties, the 2000s. So Rob, I want to know what are the best designs in your humble opinion. And I want to know why do they call the 2000s the noughties, Rob? You naughty boy. Uh, well, they only call it the noughties in the UK, I think. In the States, it's called the aughts, right? A-U-G-H-T-S. Um, well... Another word for zero in English is naught, N-O-U-G-H-T, um, which is where you get naught, as in uh, N-O-W-T, sort of colloquial Northern English for nothing. Um, and yeah, I guess the noughties sounded kind of funny. 
Well, we never really knew what to call these decades. You know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s of the 1900s were always easy to name because they were recent and many people we know were alive in them or knew people that were. But nobody really talked about the teenies or the noughties of the 1900s in the same way. And it wasn't until we ticked over the clock to this century that we uh, started having to name those decades so openly. But I guess that's why they call them the noughties. Um, it was an interesting period of watchmaking. It had been brought back from its knees um, during the 80s, stormed onto a new identity in the 1990s because watches were suddenly luxurious as opposed to more utilitarian objects. And for that reason, my pick of the best watch of the aughts or noughties is a controversial one. And it was released bang slap in the middle of the decade. And I'm not actually going to pick a reference like I did last last time for the um, for the 90s. I'm just going to go ahead and say that the collection of the Hublot Big Bang was the most shocking and I think possibly significant release of the 2000s. And in my mind, it certainly characterizes that decade the best. It's big, it's bold, it's brash, it's in your face, and it's forward thinking still. So for that reason, I'm saying the Hublot Big Bang collection is the most significant release of that decade what do you think we usually answer this question not so much per se saying that we would buy them right or own them or love them so it's i guess more a philosophical uh, shout out but i i know that you mean what you say because you would like to own an hublot we discussed this also on air um I have also a lot of respect for Hublot, but I have to go with the indies. I mean, I guess who've those listeners that, that listen to previous episodes, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Uwerk and MBNF, Vianney Halter, but Vianney Halter was really the 90s and the initiate of steampunk and, and then the crazy designs translated into crazy mechanical marvels. I mean, Van der Klau came up even in the 80s technically it was very innovative but not so much design um martin fly and felix baumgartner and if you haven't heard this episode i highly recommend you listening to the episode of the real-time show where martin fry gets very philosophical um because they started off 25 years ago so that's 97 8 but it took them quite some time to launch their second watch. And that has to be my favorite, which is the UR103 by Uwek, U-R-W-E-R-K. Uh, launched in 2003. That, that, it's kind of a minimalistic way of showing time. Um, reminds me a bit of the Star Wheels by Adam Piquet, but in a total different way. Um, and then going to MBNF, it has to be the HM3, the Horological Machine 3. Um, that, that I found also super cool in the 2000s. So I have to go for these two and I would like to own them as well. And they're actually on my grill list. My question to you is, 
when will you add a Hublot from this era to your collection, Rob? Hmm. Yeah, good question. It's, as you know, and as you referenced, been a, a long-held desire of mine to have a Hublot Big Bang, but it has never been a particularly pressing purchase. I think because there's so many of them that I like and would wear, and I'm always interested to see what's coming next, I don't feel the need to pull the trigger immediately lest I miss out on something because I feel there's always something new that's equally as exciting on the horizon so there are many other watches that will probably enter my collection before a big bang and then the honest truth is there's probably many that would have to leave it to make space for it and I mean that financially as much as I do literally in my watch box because they are quite chunky watches but um yeah I mean they're expensive aren't they? I mean, they are like a lot of money. And I think the ones that I'm most interested in, the ones that are either in magic gold. I mean, that I've always said that magic gold is my favorite material in the industry. Like they are, you know, over, well, they're five figures over 20 K. Um, and some of the chronographs that I like as well in the Texalium material, they are around the same price, 20 to 30,000. And I don't really have that money very often to burn on a Hublot chronograph, especially not one that would exist in my collection as more of a museum piece, really, than a daily beater. Bonus question then from me. Does that give you stress as a collector that your wish list is so big that you might feel you run out of either time in your lifetime to collect them all? Or, which is more likely, the funds are not there. Stress is not the word, no. Uh, there are many things in life that are stressful and worrying about another watch to add to an already enormous collection, really, uh, would just be ridiculous. I, I'm not that concerned. I enjoy the hobby of watch collecting and wearing watches and sharing them with people. I don't feel the need to get something i don't i'm not ravenous for anything anymore in my life um, i'm a nightmare when it comes to christmas and birthdays i was just saying this to my mom last night because i don't want anything that i either haven't already bought myself or would buy myself you know when a family member asks you what you want for your birthday or for christmas <laughs> i say well i'd like a Hublot Big Bang, please. <laughs> magic gold, magic gold. You yeah, want. magic gold. <laughs> Their Still eyes won't suffice. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I would, I would chuck it back uh, <laughs> ungratefully. But what is this yeah. muck? This steel rubbish? <laughs> no, I mean, it's a preposterous situation in which to be. But I am, um, I, I really don't want for much, and I enjoy the pursuit of a watch and taking my time over it and in this instance with the big bang as i said because i'm very much um, a fan and i would say at distance admirer of what the collection is and what it represents and there isn't one particular model and that really helps in that regard and when it comes to other watches even like there are so few pieces that i I feel the itch for in, in, in the way that I once did. When I was younger, I was very materialistic because I didn't have anything. and <laughs> I wanted everything. And now I have more than I ever thought I would ever be able to have. I, I actively want fewer things in my life. I want to clean house. I want to reduce my watch collection to pieces that are extremely special to me and mean something and that I wear and enjoy very regularly. Because as it is, I have this 
huge collection, which is, you know, secured in uh, in a bank, uh, in a vault most of the time. And I don't get to enjoy all the pieces that I, you know, have hard won in my life. And I wouldn't want a Hublot to just sit there in a box. I certainly wouldn't want to spend 25k on anything that just sat there in a box. It seems ridiculous to me. So I will take my time. I will see how things progress. I might at one point cash out of the vast majority of my collection and have a huge lump sum to dedicate towards that purchase, but it is not going to give me a lick of stress in my life. And if I run out of time in my pursuit of time and expire before I have all the watches that I always wanted, I would regard myself as very fortunate to have lusted until the very end. So me, myself, I, I don't get stress from it either. I love it actually. Um, I love every day logging into Instagram and being surprised with either vintage watches I've never seen before. That gives me enjoyment just looking at them and getting the thrill and excitement of seeing something new. Um, and, and also as a collector, the Merci Archie Watch collab popped on my feed. I'm like, what the heck is this? So when I saw that, I had an urge to buy it. I went to the website. The 250 limited edition series was avail- available apparently. So I just bought one. I just posted it on my Instagram if you want to see what I'm wearing. And that's my newest watch to my collection this year. Um, so that gives me joy as well. Um, so no, I don't get stressed out. It's it, I really deal with it as a hobby. And as a collector, I don't really have a theme, which I also find liberating and, and gives me freedom because I'm not boxed in. Well said. And that is a good point to wrap it up, I think, today. We've talked quite openly about our emotional connection to watchmaking today which was a nice a nice deviation from some of the harder analysis we've been running with recently so thanks for listening if you would like to get in touch with us you can contact me on instagram at rob nuds that's r-o-b-n-u-d-d-s or alon at alon ben joseph that's a-l-o-n-b-e-n-j-o-s-e-p-h Otherwise, you can contact us via email. You can find me at rob at therealtime.show and alon at alon at therealtime.show. We'll be back shortly with another interview. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.